You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Bob Odom, who serves in the pastoral team at LifeGate Church. You can find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Well, it's my honor today to get to continue our study in Luke. It, there are two events that occur in this story, and they're kind of concurrent, but uh, we'll be looking at this, and I've, I'm entitled today's sermon, Falling Down Desperate. Um, and you'll see why as we look at these events. But I want to read them as, just read the text from Luke 8, 40 through 56. Read that whole text. And you see the story of Jairus, and then you see the, the woman that comes for help to Jesus. And we want to put those two are reported together by Luke in the concurrence of events. And so we want to, to get a look at that. And to, if you could, I've, I've been trying to do this. I, old Garney Townsend used to always tell us, uh, in every way you can, Put yourself in that scene. Put yourself in that place so that we could hear fairly and accurately what really was going on in the hearts of the people. So today, could we just be part of the crowd that is around Jesus uh, during this time of His ministry? Luke 8, beginning of the 40th verse. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him, for they were all waiting for Him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, 
and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. What an event! And Jesus' life and the life of the people there. Now, Luke, in telling this story, is very, very clear in, in recording this account of Jesus' life. He's very clear about this one purpose that he has. He told us this in the first chapter, and Josh has been making reference to this throughout. Why did Luke write this, and why did he write these stories? Well, he said he wrote to Theophilus. He wanted to write an orderly account, he said, in his first, first chapter, verse 3, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So we're kind of in on this too. We need this certainty. We need this assurance that what we've been taught is the truth. And here's evidence laid out, evidence laid out, evidence laid out. Day after day and moment after moment as Jesus lived his life, we're seeing the truth of who he is and the power that he carries, his identity and his authority. So we are the beneficiaries of this. It wasn't just Theophilus uh, that Luke addresses in that first chapter, but we're the beneficiaries of this too. We need an orderly account. We need to have the assurance that what we've been taught is really the truth about Jesus. We need to understand that. And so beginning with the birth narratives about Jesus and then carrying on to the historical genealogy that sets Jesus in a place in Jewish history, all of those kind of things and, and all of the prophecies and all of the preparation, all that was going on, this is part of that orderly account so that we may know the true identity and authority of this Lord Jesus Christ. So Luke reports, writes all of these miracles and teachings that actually change people's lives. A lot of people's lives were changed, but it's not just the recipients, but those who observed and saw these things. It was, it was a remarkable kind of thing. So he, saw, he shows Jesus as having authority over diseases, like leprosy or paralysis and those kind of things, but he has power to cast out unclean spirits and then to heal those uh, who were had the demons cast out of them, the unclean spirits cast out, as we read a couple of weeks ago. And so he's seen as one who's got authority over unclean spirits, authority over all kinds of diseases, and even authority over the Sabbath. Remember this Jewish audience that would have been listening. And Jesus stood up and said at, at one point, uh, the Son of Man, the Son of Man as Lord over the Sabbath. And the Jews would have been thinking, nobody's Lord over the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the most important day, most important event in our lives. And to call himself the Son of Man, that's like saying, I'm the Messiah and I'm Lord over the Sabbath. And Jesus said, listen, the Sabbath was made for you. You were not made for the Sabbath so you could be a slave to Sabbath rules. The Sabbath was made for you to understand rest, not just physical rest, but understand spiritual rest and the, the authority and the, and the purposes of God. So Jesus has authority over diseases, unclean spirits, even over the Sabbath, over nature. Remember when he, when, when he was asleep in the boat and they woke him up because there was a tremendous storm and they thought they were all going to drown and and Jesus woke up and calmed everything down. And even his disciples were saying, who is this that has authority over the wind and the waves? You see, they too needed this orderly account in order to have assurance that what they've been taught and the one in whom they've 
been encouraged to believe really is the Lord, really is the Messiah. And so Jesus has all of this. Uh, Luke has shown this in this orderly account. Authority over all of it, whether it's disease or nature or the Sabbath or demons, doesn't matter what. And today, what, what we see in the text that we read, he has authority over, now get this, chronic disease and sickness that cannot be healed by anybody, so we're told, and even authority over death. It seems to me, it seems to me, that these events should help us and should help to accomplish in our lives what Luke set out to do. Here's an orderly account, and I want you to have assurance that you've got the truth. You've been taught the truth. So, here's all the evidence that he brings. And today we see extremes. These are some real extremes. Uh, Long-term illness that we are even told in verse 43 this lady could not be healed by anyone. So this lady was beyond medical help. She had spent everything she could and could not get help. So there is that extreme, and then the extreme of death itself, and Jairus' daughter. Now, just so we, we get this, you notice it started off in the text. It said, when Jesus returned. Returned from where? Well, across the Sea of Galilee. Remember, he had gone across the Sea of Galilee Galilee to the Gerasenes, and that's where he encountered that demoniac that had tons of demons living inside of him. He cast out the demons, and the people of that area got together. They didn't like that at all. And, and they said, Wait, man, you scare us. Or would you leave? And, and it, we're told, we read it last week, so he got into the boat and returned. Returned where? Back across the sea. And what happened when he got there? When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. The garrison said, would you please get out of here? You scare us. And, and here are the crowd on the other side. What, we're glad you're back. We remember the healings that you did. We remember what you taught. We're so glad that you're back. And they welcomed him. They were all waiting for him, we're told in verse 40. So, it's pretty nice to be welcomed, I would think. And so here he was, crowds of people around him, and he was on en route to Jairus' house, but, but I'm going to take these things in a different order. Let's think about this woman who came up in this crowd and just wanted to touch the very hem of Jesus' garment, the fringe of his garment. First of all, just to get the perspective right, this woman had been ill, hemorrhaging blood, for as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive. Twelve years. I think that's a long time. She was sick, we're told. She could not be healed by anyone. This woman would be considered ceremonially unclean by the Jews. That means you can't go to the synagogue. Her spiritual family that you would hope would be around her, she wasn't allowed to be there. She was considered unclean in the sense if she touched anyone or anyone touched her, that person became unclean for the day and had to wash their clothes and all that. So if you want to read about that, Luke 15, I mean Leviticus 15 tells the story about ceremonial uncleanness in this kind of instance. So she was sort of an untouchable, isolated from everybody. 
Let me tell you something. One of the things that I think about often when I, I have been by the bedside of a lot of elderly, dying people, one of the things that strikes me is sometimes they're almost untouchable. People are afraid to touch them. I've seen person after person in nursing homes that just, they love a pet or a stuffed animal. Why? Because it's something to hold. Because they're not held by anybody so often. Not cared for, touched. This woman, 12 years, up and around and active, but not around people. Isolated from everybody. You wonder, did she even have any friends? Maybe she did, I don't know. But if she did, they weren't touching her and she wasn't touching them. So uh, she spent every single thing that she had to get medical help, exhausted all resources, and we're just told she could not be healed by anyone. Desperate, falling down desperate before Jesus. That's why in verse 43, well, we're told that she couldn't be healed, but when she came to Jesus, what did she do? She just fell before him, reached to touch the fringe of his garment. If I can do that. But even that would have been difficult. You'd have to shuffle your way through the crowd and hope that nobody in that crowd knew that you weren't supposed to be touched and, and somehow touched the fringe of his garment as if to be healed. She knew that this was the rabbi she had heard all about. So maybe she could be healed. Nobody else could heal her. Nothing else could be done. Maybe this will work. So what happened? She touched the fringe of his garment. She was healed immediately. She knew it. She knew it. And Jesus knew somebody had touched him in faith and that power had gone out from him. That's why he started asking, who touched me? And Peter said, you've got to be kidding. Everybody's touching you. Everybody's crowding around. This crowd is so great. Uh, who knows? And, but Jesus persisted. And the woman came forward. Think about how hard this might have been for her. Verse 46. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, because Jesus was calling her out, she came trembling. Can you blame her? She came trembling, falling down before him, falling down desperate, and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. That might have been kind of embarrassing for her. And to have to say that in front of everybody. And that she had been healed. What a blessing to her. I love the next line of the story. Jesus looked at her and he called her daughter. I think that that may have been about the first time that anybody in years that anybody had said anything affectionate to her or spoken kindly to her. And Jesus said, daughter. Wouldn't that be good to hear? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Faith healed you. Now, why did Jesus make a deal out of it? Why didn't he just say, okay, well, power's gone out from me, just great, let's go on. Why did he call her out? And <clears throat> I've never been very good at analyzing the motives of anybody. Jesus or myself. <laughs> Or anybody else. I don't know. But I could speculate one of the things that may have been with this, this woman would 
have needed to know that what she needed was contact with Jesus, not just access to his power. He had power, no doubt about it. But how does she get that power to work in her to bring healing to her body? And here's the thing I love about this. Jesus is always personal. It wasn't enough that just somebody in the crowd, anonymous person, got healed. Who was it? It's you. I'm calling you daughter. Faith has healed you. Now go in peace. Everything with Jesus is personal, even though there may be a corporate thing going on, like the building of the kingdom of God. Who builds the kingdom of God? It's not us. God builds His kingdom. But one by one, He reaches people like you and people like me. And He calls us daughter, son, your mind. That's how God does that big work, but He does it in a personal way. And that's why one of the things I love about the gospel is it's always personal. It's not that there aren't bigger pictures, but in the middle of the bigger picture, that bigger picture is made up of people. And Jesus always sees the people. Well, remember, this is part of a bigger story. Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, a ruler of the synagogue, had come to Jesus and begged him to come to his house. What's a ruler of the synagogue? Well, it's somebody who takes... I met a guy one time, told me he was from Vermont or somewhere, but he told me, um, my title in my church is I'm deacon in charge of logistics. I said, what does that mean? That sounds pretty good. We, we, I think we need deacons in charge of logistics around here. Logistics, eat my, eat my lunch. So, well, logistics, he was in charge of synagogue readings, lining up the teachings and prayers, just the things that went on in the synagogue. He was a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus. How do we know that this guy was falling down desperate? Because he risked everything. You remember in this Jewish circle, most of the Jews, some Jews were saying, yeah, we're beginning to think this guy's the Messiah. But a lot of them were saying, no, he can't be the Messiah. He's not a king riding on a horse. He's not coming to deliver us politically from the Romans. So they would have, and did, reject Jesus as the Messiah. But here the leader of the synagogue was saying, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm desperate for my daughter. I love my daughter more than I love being accepted by the people. That had to be going on. I mean, this guy risked everything, risked his whole career, and fell down, falling at Jesus' feet, and implored him. You know what implored means? It means to beg. I'm begging you, will you come to my house? Why? Because his 12-year-old daughter was sick and dying. This man was desperate. We're told that he fell down before Jesus and begged him, please come to my house. So Jesus went. I like these words. Jairus came, Jesus went. Here the, the lady comes to Jesus, Jesus sends her out. And, all, and then picks up the story again, Jesus comes to Jairus' house. There, the interruption there with the woman who needed to be healed could have been 
kind of difficult for Jairus. We're not told anything about that, but, but a messenger came from his house during all this delay and said, you don't need to bother uh, the teacher anymore because your daughter died. It's really a kind way of saying it. Just, just think, wow, who was this messenger? Well, the Jewish writings called the Mishnah, rabbinic writings, had some requirements for how to grieve properly when a Jewish person died. This sounds very odd to us, but there had to be at least two flute players and one wailing woman to help grieve. Now remember, this, this was not to be a circus. It was, they were trying to encourage proper grief, I think. But I don't know what it would be like to be the professional grievers to help everybody else grieve. But anyway, apparently some of that was already going on at Jairus' home because in verse 52, all were weeping and mourning for her. And Jesus said, wait a minute, she's asleep. Because sleep is one of those words in the New Testament where it talks about death, but it's, he calls it sleep because it's temporary. Something's about to happen here. Jesus knew it, but it says that her spirit returned to her when Jesus said, child, arise. He had already given a promise. He had already said, don't fear, only believe, and she will be well. Well, here are all these people mourning. Now, and I, I thought about this. Somebody could read this and they could say, I love, the, I love the way Luke reported this in tandem. He's got these two stories together. Here's why I love it. Because somebody could think, well, Jairus was an important man in the community. Of course, Jesus would go to his house and would minister to his daughter because Jairus was important. Well, this woman wasn't important to anybody. And Jesus ministered to her just as effectively. Maybe she was important to somebody. I don't know. But she was certainly isolated from all. So, it wasn't just because Jairus was important, it's because Jesus ministers to people. People like us, we don't have to be some kind of big important person for Jesus to come to us. He comes to us. Raised her up. Child, arise. She got up. Alive. Spirit returned to her. Imagine the joy of those parents. And what happened? Jesus said, she needs something to eat. Feed her. Why did he do that? She could eat later, you know, I guess. But do you know, sitting down and eating means this one is fully alive. And maybe Luke had in mind what was going to be the end of his book when he got to that story about Jesus having been crucified raised from the dead. Remember the disciples were meeting in closed doors out of fear of the Jews, and they didn't know what, was, what is going on around here. You know, the tomb is reported to be empty. What does all this mean? And Jesus came to the room and said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, they, they were thinking, that's absolutely wonderful, but I don't know if I believe it. I don't know. So 
Here they were not knowing what to do, so Jesus asked the question, do you have anything to eat? Luke 24. And he sat down and ate. Because to sit down and eat, this person is fully alive. This is not a ghost. This is not a spirit. This is not a spook. This one is fully alive. Maybe Luke, in looking down the road at what he was going to write, and, and a little bit later in his gospel, was thinking, that's why Jesus did this for this girl. They need to know that she is fully alive. And so he ordered that food would be given to her. Now, the last verse of our text, her parents were amazed. I bet they were. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now listen, there had been flute players and mourners and crowds around following Jesus all as that lady was healed. And here they were at Jairus' house. Who knows how many people were there. And Jesus said, don't tell anybody. But they were in the process of planning a, a funeral. Well, part of it is, I think, I think part of it is a courtesy Jesus gave to that family. Don't draw unnecessary attention to this for the sake of this family. Also, he wasn't through and the crowds made it difficult for him to do some of the things that he was to do or to go where he wanted to go. So there was that part of it, but maybe just respect for this family. The last thing they need is 400 people showing up at their door. We, we were about to bury your daughter. Can we see her? And so Jesus told them, let's just keep it as quiet as we can for a while. Unnecessary attention. So, Luke continues this journey he's on, revealing Jesus' identity, giving assurance through all of this evidence that Jesus is the truth and that His message is life-changing. I love the way C.S. Lewis talked about this and other miracles. He said, think about a beam of light. I wanted to bring my flashlight that had a beam you could see on it, but that, you can't follow it very well. But C.S. Lewis said, you take a, a, a beam of light. That beam of light is pointed at something. But what matters is what it's pointed at. What is it illuminating? What is it trying to say? You, if you get totally caught up with the beam itself, you miss what it's pointing at. And so he talks about miracles and healings and all of those incredible things like the beam. You don't want to get overloaded with the beam. You want to see what is it illuminating? And it's illuminating Jesus. I think that where, where Luke is headed to this, I think he's going to show in just a, an, another chapter, he's going to get to this point. When, when Jesus' disciples were there and Jesus asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, well, John the Baptist or Elijah or some other of the prophets who have risen. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? This is in chapter 9, verse 20. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Pretty clear. They've been wondering, who is this that's, that can calm the winds and the waves and can raise the dead and can heal the sick, even those who have been sick for so long that there's no healing for them? It's Jesus. Shining the beam of that light. Jesus, the healer, the Messiah, the one who gives us hope 
and heals our ultimate sin, sin, uh, sin in our heart, that sickness of sin, to heal that with His forgiveness. Okay, what do we do with all this? What do we take away? How are we to gain certainty about Jesus through this part of Luke's orderly account? Well, let's think again just about this desperation thing. Falling down desperate. Implored Jesus. Came trembling. Falling down before Him. In a way, may the Lord help us to see the desperate need we are in for Him, not just initially, but for every day that we live through this life into eternity. We need Jesus. The beam of all that He does is pointing to Himself so that we will follow that beam to what it's meant to illuminate Kids, young people, do you know? Do you know? You, everybody thinks their mom and dad can do just about anything. They can fix anything. There's something that dad can't fix. There's something that mom can't fix. And it is the emptiness in our hearts. Nobody can fix that. We're no different from this woman in a sense who for all those years and could not find healing. There's something that dad can't fix. I'm sorry if that pops a balloon, but I don't think it does. There's something that moms can't fix. There's something that only Jesus can fix. Only Jesus. I didn't grow up in a home where I thought my parents could do anything. I grew up in a home. It was a great home, so many respects. My mother made the living. My dad was very sick. And so I grew up realizing, you know, there are some things that just don't appear to be fixable. My dad's health. The fact that we were really being raised by our grandmother who lived with us and took care of us. There were a lot of things that I, I'm, I'm, I didn't feel, I don't feel sorry for myself at all about any of it, so don't get me wrong. No, but it was the reality of my life. And I, I early on realized there's some things my dad can't fix. I feel awfully empty inside. I was 16 when I realized I wept in my church. I, it was humiliating. I wept in my church. Nobody could tell me anything that helped. You'll get over it. But grow up. I wept because I felt so empty. And I wept before God. I said, Lord, surely, surely you have something for me. And it was in the middle of all that that my good friend Ron Ziner said, hey, I'm... I'm feeling the same way. I'm going downtown Houston to a Youth for Christ program. I don't know anything about it. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's no good. But will you go? I said, okay, I'll go. And I heard the gospel 
for the first time in my life, clearly presented. And I knew that is what will fill the emptiness of my own heart and life. That is what will give me what my dad cannot give me, what my mother cannot give me, what my grandmother cannot give me, what people I've known all my life. They don't, it's not a matter of money or even healing or I don't know what it's a matter of, but I'm empty. And that night, I knelt before the Lord, repented of my sins, and asked Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I mean, when I say Lord, I mean the boss. I'm not telling him what I'm doing or where I'm going. He's telling me. That was a long time ago. I haven't been 16 for a very long time. And the Lord did something that night that no man could do. He brought a healing to my heart that nobody else could bring. There are things that only Jesus can do. And we all need Him. Kids and young people, would you get this into your head? Mom and Dad can't fix this, but Jesus can. Jesus can. And only Jesus can. I love the line of an old hymn called Rock of Ages. Nobody likes that hymn, but I do. Uh, but I like this line. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I don't have anything to contribute. I don't have anything to give. I don't have any solutions. I'm like this woman, or I like Jairus, who said, Lord, my daughter's dead. What am I going to do about it? Or the lady, I've spent everything I have, and I'm desperate. I'm falling down desperate. Can you do something? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We do that in faith. The same kind of faith that that woman had when Jesus said, your faith has healed you. Now go in peace. Faith believing that what Jesus says about Himself, we believe. That's what Luke wants to happen in this Gospel. I'm giving an orderly account. I want you to have the assurance that everything you've been taught is really the truth. Jesus is still available. And we still need to be those who do like Jairus did and did like this woman did. We need to come. Say, Lord, I'm out of options here. I'm out of resources. Mom and Dad can't fix it. I'm looking to you. And the Lord comes to us. He saves us, forgives us for our sins, and sets us on a purposeful life all the way for as long as we live and into eternity. We're going to sing a hymn in just a minute. You guys can come on up, the musicians. It's an old hymn that as soon as we see the words, we think, oh, yeah, 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 I know that one. But listen, listen to the words of this song. My hope Justice read about earlier, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, anything else. I don't trust anything else, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils His lovely face, listen, 
there will be darkness come into every life at some time or other. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, every storm of life, my anchor holds within the veil. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I know that there are people in this room who have felt that darkness at times because you love someone and they're spiraling down and you know they're not long for this life. And it hurts. Yes, it does. I know there are people who have watched ones that you love be injured, grow sick, ill, maybe try everything possible medically only to come up and say, I don't know where else to go. Well, what was true in these stories is true today. We come to Jesus. We need to be the ones who say, Lord, you've said this, now I'm coming to you in faith, believing. I just want a grasp of your truth. And Luke presents these stories to us to say, listen, here's this beam that's shining toward Jesus. Follow the line of that beam and see Him. Go to Him. Ask Him. There's nothing magical about it. There's nothing mystical about it. It's just honestly dealing with our own need and His supply. And to every young person and child, I just would say, it's important to be one who comes be the kid in the classroom. Jesus said, come, I want to come. Every adult, be the one who says, I want to I humble myself. I don't have anything, I, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross, I cling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you and praise you for the desperation that we've seen today in this woman and in this ruler of the synagogue. And thank you for the miracle that we've seen in Jesus' own life. Thank you that Jesus lives and still works those miracles in our lives. Oh Lord, help us to see our need for you. I pray that there would be a sense of desperation that would grow in our lives, not to make us miserable people, but to point us in the direction of your grace. Do your work, Lord. We trust you for it in Jesus' name.